the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery and on today's podcast, I'll be talking to Owen Burke-Kennedy about whether robots are coming for our jobs and if so, what jobs and when. Adele Bergen from the ESRI and Irish Times economics editor Cliff Taylor will also be here to discuss a new report on the impact of Brexit on the Irish economy. But first, Peter Hamilton has a roundup of this week's business news. Hi, Peter. What's Hi, caught Laura. your attention this week? Uh, well, a few things. I think this morning, the the biggest piece of news out this morning was that uh, Datalex, the travel software company, they had a review of their accounts, which was conducted by PwC, which identified significant accounting irregularities. Now, this arose from a profit warning that they issued all the way back in January. And they had subsequently... Uh, outlined to investors that there were some issues in the company and we weren't entirely clear what they were uh, at that time. Now we are entirely clear. So as a result of these significant accounting irregularities, this morning Datalex outlined plans to overhaul their finance function and implement improved controls in the company. PwC found that the group's revenue, their earnings and their profit for the uh, half year to the end of June the 30th were misstated and that it failed to correctly apply certain accounting standards and incorrectly recognised about $6.4 million worth of revenues. So quite significant. And what that has done is it's really put it in a bad place in the market. Its shares have fallen about 70% this year. They were down by about 8% by lunchtime. So as a result of this, Datalex has had to come to some way to shore up its finances uh, and they raised more cash from their main shareholder, who's Dermot Desmond. Uh, they raised about $3.86 million from him and they've also then entered into a loan agreement with him for about $6.14 million. So significant stuff and it remains to be seen how they recover from this. They have said that 2019 will be a year of transition for them. So hopefully for them and indeed for shareholders and the people that work there, it will indeed be a year of transition. So these kinds of misstatements, I mean, they have been known to happen, but they're still pretty unusual and and nobody ever takes a kind of relaxed view about them. Uh, Investors are rightfully quite alarmed when they occur. They are indeed. In the case of Datalex, the issue was that Accounting standards were mixed up, uh, IRS 15 versus another IRS. So it's, 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 it's complex, non-exciting stuff. Uh, and when it goes wrong, it goes very wrong. And, and that's what we've seen in Datalex's case. That, as I say, misstating revenue is significant. And for the, the extent to which they have is quite significant. You, you know, I, I suppose the thing is, what they were doing was booking revenue effectively in one part of the year related to work for which they wouldn't get paid for some time and and that has caused the issues here. And you say they need to overhaul uh, the finance function. They've said they'll do that, but they're currently without a chief financial officer? They actually still have a chief financial officer. That's Donal Rooney. Donal Rooney only joined the company in December and it's understood, we haven't confirmed this, but it's understood that he was the one who found this out and, and has tried to sort this problem. He has decided to leave the company but again, I, I must stress, he only joined the company in September. He is most certainly not responsible for any of this. Yes. He's responsible rather for, for finding it out. But he has now, after having to preside over a massive profit warning only weeks into the job, understandably, he's decided that he will ultimately part ways with the company. I, I'm not clear on when that is going to be, but 
it is going to happen. It might be until there's a replacement found. And, and, and that, that process is underway. Okay, so something else that was uh, making headlines this week is actually a, a long-running kind of saga, a European saga, not Brexit this time, but copyright legislation. Yeah, so this is, I suppose, a positive move for artists and perhaps newspapers to some degree. That'll We'll have to see how that plays out. But what happened was that yesterday MPs in Strasbourg backed rules to force internet giants such as YouTube and Google to take out licences to show copyrighted content and make them liable to take down material that breaks intellectual property rules. So the vote will come into effect from 2021 as long as every country transposes it by that date. They may not, but uh, they they should. Um, so on, what this means practically, uh, under one article, for example, uh, services such as Google News will need to take out licences with publishers and newspapers to show as much as short snippets of text. And this could be uh, snippets that are slightly longer than headlines, but you know, overly long headlines don't cut the mustard, for example. So this is the so-called Article 11 within the legislation. That's yeah. correct. That, yeah, so, so, so and, and I suppose it's designed to, to protect uh, publishers in, in this instance. But the, the, I suppose the issue for Google is that when Spain did this in 2014, this led it to having to, to shut its news service there. So they, and now admittedly that's one market and perhaps they didn't try very hard to get around it there. But given that it's now the entire uh, block, the entire European Union, uh, either they'll have to get around it or, or change their business model utterly. But it is it is quite a, a significant shift for them. I mean, I know there's different views on this, but it seems pretty positive to, for me if it means that uh, musicians and publishers and artists are more likely to get paid. But of course, the, the rights of that group are being balanced up against other types of creators, shall we say, the sort of the user-generated content side of things. Uh, I've We've had a welcome, welcoming statements this week from the uh, music rights body IMRO and also magazines Ireland. But on the other side, um, another part of Google, obviously, is YouTube has fiercely lobbied against this and it's still not very happy, I imagine, with what the outcome of is. No, understandably not. This will cost them a lot of money. This will, uh, the, the regulation of this will, will undoubtedly cost them a loan, you know, so it is a significant move. I suppose just you mentioned briefly that the user generated content there. And I just want to come to that because there has been some concern amongst users, just the standard user like you and I, um, that, you know, that, that, for example, memes and GIFs will be outlawed as a result yeah, of this. No more that, memes. <laughs> that, that isn't the case. And there is an exemption in this for content uploaded for the purpose of, uh, and, and this is the phraseology they used, caricature, parody or pastiche. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, personally, I wouldn't be maybe too upset if all memes suddenly died tomorrow. Well, but <laughs> not under this. Uh, so, so unfortunately, you'll have to wait another day. Okay, now still alive, uh, just about, is department store chain Debenhams, but um, there's some movement now about its future. Yeah, this this is really fascinating. Mike Ashley has, well, through Sports Direct this morning, said that they're considering tabling an offer that would value the department store chain at £61.4 million. Uh, its current market value is £41.2 million, and that's gone up, uh, that's up about 50% today as a result of this offer. Uh, the offer is to pay 5p per share. Uh, as of this morning, before trading opened, it was about 2p per share. So it's a significant uh, significant boost for investors who have effectively had their money wiped out over the past number of, number of years. Debenhams is really struggling on the high street in the UK. It is struggling to, to pay down its massive rents. So 
it's in a bad place and, and Mike Ashley is trying to to take control of the situation. What is he doing though, Mike Ashley? He seems to be buying everything. His strategy is uh, is unclear to me. I, I suppose some <laughs> of the things... But it's unclear to a lot of people, to yeah, be fair. <laughs> I, I mean, people will be aware that he bought House of Fraser. He also put in a bid for Patisserie Valerie, which he didn't win ultimately, and that was that was bought by an Irish company. He yeah. put in a bid for... He's put in a bid for for anything that has fallen by the wayside of late. And, but he was successful in the case of House of Fraser and a few other smaller companies. What he's trying to do, first of all, with this offer is to insert himself on the board. They don't... Obviously, well, this is the current CEO. Uh, I'm sure isn't thrilled at having Mike Ashley as the new CEO. So it's hard to know where this goes. Now, they've said that they will consider it, but that they instead favour their own 200 million refinancing plans, which would have the effect of wiping out shareholders, including Ashley, who owns just shy of 30% of of the company and Sports Direct, obviously opposes that plan. Well, I saw the other day that its uh, market valuation was, I think, about a tenth of its net debt. Now, I know its share price has rocketed today, so, um, it, you know, it's only probably closer to a fifth now. But those are not great numbers. But we'll, we'll might come back to that story, I'd say, in weeks to come. But for now, thank you very much, Peter Hamilton. Coming up, I'll be talking about the rise of automation with my fellow human, Owen Burke-Kennedy. Waiters, shelf stackers and sales assistants are among the most likely jobs set to be automated in the future, a new report has found. Is this a welcome end for routine and repetitive tasks or does it herald a grim era of high unemployment in which the robot workforce has the edge on a mere human one? Owen Burke-Kennedy, you've been covering the story this week for the Irish Times. Tell us about the report. Yeah, the report actually was done by the UK's Office for National Statistics. Uh, So it refers to England, really, but obviously it's a reasonable barometer of what's going to happen everywhere else. So as you said, um, the robots are coming, but not for everyone, it seems. Um, Frontline staff in what they refer to as elemental occupations or elementary occupations, such as um, waiters, shelf stackers, uh, bar staff, sales assistants, will all find uh, part of their jobs at least uh, taken over by a certain level of automation. So that doesn't necessarily mean that these people are essentially going to be made redundant automatically. It just means that some of their tasks could be automated and will be automated to come in, in the future. You know, So job creation in those areas is essentially suppressed because if companies have automated options that they are more efficient and they see as more profitable and maybe even what people are expecting to encounter in a supermarket or a cafe, that's the direction they're going to go in. Well, that's yeah, that's that's one interpretation of it. But I, I mean, you know, revolutions in the past have always had countercurrents, and uh, these technology revolutions often create as many jobs as they suppress, as you say. So there's a, there was a big study last year by the World Economic Forum, and they predicted that you know the robot revolution could see around 75 million jobs lost. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they suggested that up to 133 million jobs could be created around these technologies. So it's very difficult to. Uh, to pinpoint exactly the impact on employment. There's an interesting example. If you look at uh, McDonald's restaurants, we talked about this earlier, they're rolling out these order boxes to speed up uh, service at at their restaurants around Europe and the the Grafton Street branch has them in already. And so while... um, they, they, they speed up your your ordering of, of meals at the same time the restaurant has employed a kind of waitering staff because they want to enrich the family dining experience. So they actually now have more people working in a more automated branch. 
This is an interesting anecdote. So they're actually, as a company, McDonald's, trying to recover some sort of difference between them and their competitors uh, by actually having uh, more human exactly. interactions. Fine dining at McDonald's. <laughs> This report, I think, from, was from the Office of National Statistics. I think it's quite useful, I think, in the sense that it's, you know, just done a list, basically, of mm. the jobs uh, most and least at risk of automation. I mentioned some of the ones that are most at risk, and and there was a few more in there. Bar staff, I think, was another one. Pharmacists, um, security yeah. guards, bus drivers, an interesting one. Um, so yeah. driverless buses, that's, that's supposedly something that's on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, I think they're on trial in Singapore at the moment and maybe in Sweden, I think, as well. But some of the ones that were least at risk of automation, where, where if you had a teenager maybe looking at career options ahead, what areas should they be looking at that are least at risk of well, robots uh, coming on? The, the survey, the study, I should say, pinpoints three particular professions, doctors, higher education teaching professionals and senior professionals of educational establishments as the areas that are least likely to be at risk of automation. But of course, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, when it comes to medical diagnoses that, uh, you know, robots may be uh, much more efficient at scanning the latest research and pinpointing uh, where the diagnosis should be and, and, and what the treatment should be. So... But that's what the survey says anyway. <laughs> so has there been any Irish reports on this? There was one actually recently that my colleague uh, Charlie Taylor covered, and that was by two economists in University College Cork, who actually suggested that two out of every five jobs across the state were at risk of being lost to automation. And in particular, they pinpointed jobs like um, office jobs, secretarial and administrative support positions, uh, process plant operators, various uh, jobs in agriculture and customer services. So again, um, they did also mention that while these tasks, a lot of these tasks may become obsolete due to robots and automation, um, the roles, it may free up workers to do more engaging roles. I mean, this is the great irony, isn't it, of every single <laughs> industrial revolution It should, in theory, free us up for uh, more leisure time. But at the moment, that doesn't seem to be happening. Well, of course, the, the famous uh, economist John Maynard Keynes actually in the 30s predicted that we'd all be working a two or three day week uh, in 100 years time and we'd be ha having most of the week to, to leisure. Walk on the but beach. That has, that has the opposite. You'd say the opposite <laughs> has actually happened. But I mean, are, are some of the, the fears about this overstated, do you think? Well, it's... it's uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in many ways, automation could be seen as a good thing. A lot of the menial tasks that people don't like doing will be taken over. Uh, the question is, you know, just what roles will it create? And that's a big question mark. It's hard to see. But um, it's really hard from this vantage just to know where we're all going with this. But one interesting aspect of the ONS uh, study was that um, a smaller amount of jobs, 7.4% of jobs are extremely at risk of being automated in England at the moment. And that's actually less than they predicted two years ago. So it seems that a lot of the jobs are actually being automated without us necessarily being totally aware, you know. So it's all kind of happening already at the fringes. The the robots are already here. The McDonald's why, order boxes have arrived. <laughs> yeah, so that number has gone down. It's not necessarily because they overestimated it before. Yeah, yeah. Well, the famous uh, US economist and skeptic Robert Gordon tells a funny story. He, he went to um, uh, the Pentagon a few years ago where the research agency had a competition where the best US robotic teams brought out their wares and, and, and put uh, robots through their paces. And the robots were put through to various tests. They were asked to walk up and down stairs, turn valves, operate power drills. 
stuff that would take a human a few minutes to do anyway. The winning robot took 45 minutes, even with remote-controlled uh, assistance. It turned, uh, it turned out, though, however, the most difficult task all the robots found, was, and something they found very daunting, was simply to uh, turn a doorknob. So uh, <laughs> that uh, prompted Robert Gordon to quip, if you're worried about the Terminator coming after you, just close the door. Well, some of those are quite tricky, to be fair. You know, let's be fair to the robots. But, um, you know, this is sort of attracting a lot of high-level commentary. Um, I think the Pope has sort of been involved saying robots need to, I don't know, service uh, humanity and not, <laughs> not the other way around, I guess he meant. And Leo Varadkar said recently the most important thing was that we plan ahead. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I think it's something like a fifth of the warehouse positions at Amazon are already automated. We need to sort of look ahead and see, governments rather, need to look ahead and say, What's the plan here? What's our policy response? Is this going to cause a massive unemployment problem in the future? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting you should bring up Amazon because, I mean, those companies really are at the cold face of it. And if you really want to get a vision of the future, future you know, their warehousing arrangements are, are amazingly automated. So it would be worth looking at uh, those companies just to see where it's all going. Because I suppose, you know, sometimes our focus is on traditional roles, whereas those companies are really at the forefront of it. Okay. Well, I'd say the robots haven't come for journalists uh, just yet, but there are a number of programs that churn out automatic uh, financial earnings data and things like that. Um, the Not kind of information that humans used to type up can be done by programs quite handily. Nobody can really afford to get too comfortable. For now, thanks very much, Owen Burke Kennedy. Thank you. Coming up, we'll be talking about the damage Brexit is set to do to the Irish economy. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. A disorderly no-deal Brexit will put up to 80,000 jobs at risk and be deeply damaging to the Irish economy, warns a report by the Economic and Social Research Institute. Here to talk through the possible scenarios are Dr Del Bergen of the ESRI, who is the lead author of the report, and Irish Times Managing Editor Cliff Taylor. Welcome Adele. What did the report find? Um, well, I suppose this, this report looked at a range of uh, Brexit scenarios and the impact they would have on the Irish economy. I suppose our main result is that as a result of any Brexit scenario, uh, overall the growth rate in the economy will slow down. Um, um, unemployment growth will slow down so that by 2030 or 2028, 10 years from now, the level of Irish output in the economy in, in a deal scenario would be around 2.6% below where it otherwise would have been um, and up to 5% lower in a no-deal scenario. So essentially Brexit is very bad news in each of the scenarios you looked at, which was the deal scenario, the no-deal scenario, and then a sort of a, a disorderly no-deal scenario. Yeah, so the, the impact is negative in, in each of the scenarios. I suppose it's important to point out that the negative impact in, in the deal scenario is around half that of a no-deal scenario. So um, essentially, if, if the UK does manage to, to pass the, the withdrawal agreement in the next week or so, the negative impact for Ireland will be, will be, will be much smaller because in that case, the UK will, will, will have a transition period uh, to the end of 2020 wherein it will continue to um, follow EU rules and regulations. 
So even in this deal scenario, though, there will still be damage and the report has kind of outlined how any gains in foreign direct investment, for example, will, will be outweighed by kind of negative effect on trade. Yeah, so in, in the short run in the deal scenario, uh, the, the impacts are more limited. So uh, uh, in the short run, by, by around 2020, we expect that the level of GDP to be around 0.6% below where it otherwise would have been had the UK stayed in the EU. So the economy will still continue to grow, just at a lower pace. And this is something that effectively all households will notice. Um, yeah, so so I suppose the, the impacts on, on households are also quite severe. Um, uh, again, our results show that in the long run, real personal disposable income, so this is the amount of money people have to, to spend on goods and services, will be below uh, where it otherwise would have been had the UK stayed in the EU, maybe around 2% lower in, in a deal scenario, around 4% lower in a no-deal or a disorderly no-deal scenario. So the, the, this fall in house, household income is driven by the, the, the fact that we'll have lower employment in the economy, lower wages, um, and, and, and consumers will also face higher prices as a result of Brexit. Cliff, lower wages, higher prices, this is very bad news, isn't it? Well, it's not good news. And I think, as Adele said, it's been clear from the outset that any kind of Brexit is going to be bad for the Irish economy and that a softer version, uh, you know, would be a good deal less damaging than a, than a hard version and particularly a crash out version. I suppose one thing that struck me looking at the report is the difference in up to 2020 uh, as comparing a no deal crash out scenario on one side, which would cost nearly 2.5% of GDP and a deal scenario on the other side, which would cost 0.6%. You know, one is kind of a noticeable shock to the economy. The other is something that we could probably pretty much take in our stride, I think, uh, given the growth rate of, of of the economy at the moment. So, you know, I think there's a huge, a huge uh, divergence there, uh, so making what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks really important from our point of view. A no-deal Brexit particularly a crash out is a real a real difficulty and creates creates real problems uh straight away uh, by by its nature uh, on the other hand if there is a deal or some long extension uh in 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 the EU in the UK's exit period as is another possibility on the table now to allow kind of another form of brexit to be discussed uh, the hit to, to us could be a good deal less i mean one of the difficulties for for people like the SRI is the scenario was still so unclear that it's very difficult to know what you're dealing with. You know, hence the, diff- the need to come up with two or three different scenarios. And, you know, you could have come up with five or six uh, and, and still maybe pick the wrong one. So we're still in a very uncertain situation. Uh, ironically, a couple of days before the original Brexit date uh, and a couple of weeks before what, what could be the date, April the 12th, although there is talk of that being pushed out as well. So so just to make clear to listeners as we speak, um, it's just ahead of a series of indicative votes in Westminster today, which aren't binding, but may point a path forward. Um, but it's almost three years uh, since the referendum and we're still effectively worrying about a chaotic Brexit. I mean, it's all, this is already chaotic. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of scary, I suppose, that only two days before what was to be the Brexit date uh, the House of Commons is for the first time getting a chance <laughs> to vote on what kind of Brexit it might like to see. Uh, you would have thought a sensible sensible strategy might be to do that on day one or very early in the process anyway, When perhaps when the 
when the different options had been teased out a bit. But to do it now uh, w- with a gun to the UK's head means the, out- the outcome of it is very uncertain. The other thing in the mix is that Theresa May has said or hinted that she's going to have another vote on the original withdrawal agreement. Uh, most people still think that's MV3. Unli- MV3. <laughs> most people still think that's unlikely to pass, but but we just don't know. There's certainly signs that some of the Brexiteers are coming back on board. Uh, so that could happen by Friday. Were that to pass, it it means the indicative votes aren't aren't you know don't have any so indicative are just indicative. Uh, if if it doesn't pass, then it's not quite clear how we get from indicative votes to a new policy that the UK will bring to the EU and get agreement by April the twelfth. I can see another summit happening in the week of April the twelfth if the uh, if MV three that the, the the vote doesn't go through again, and more last more more late night talks, more uncertainty in the run up to that uh, April the twelfth deadline. Adele, when you started working on this report, w- did you expect that maybe one of these three outcomes would already be off the table, um, or yeah. even two of them? Yeah. So over over the past couple of months, we've been running a whole range of scenarios. And the the thing that I said to the the team that I was working with is that in one sense, this is really frustrating because we're going to probably throw out half of this because at some point uh, we we did expect at some point over the over the past few weeks that 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 something would become clearer. And um, I mean, I think that the the situation in the UK, the the kind of the political turbulence means that um, what we think we think changes almost on, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, as, as Cliff has already outlined, um, you know, there, there could be a third meaningful vote uh, or, it, you know, it's likely that there will be one. Whether that will pass or not is not clear. Um, I think when the EU summit uh, happened uh, last week, it, it looked as though, although the EU had, had extended uh, the, the sort of the, the deadline um, uh, by a short amount of time for the UK, it looked as though that was really just to avoid them crashing out by, by accident um, on, on, on Friday. Um, it's still not clear, though, if this vote will pass. Um, and so that for that reason, we, we did, we felt we had to put in at least the three scenarios, which is, is, is can be very difficult to try to convey very often. Uh, 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 you know, people want to know, well, which one is it? And the honest answer to that is, I don't know. Um, it's it's uh, and and I think you know. Let's see what happens over the next few few days. No, I don't think anyone knows. That's yeah. the really scary thing. I mean, I think uh, especially this disorderly no deal uh, scenario, which I think some people are referring to as an accidental hard Brexit, which is a sort of a very kind of anodyne term for something that's incredible for uh, yeah, I, I, uh, any country to do. I suppose that term comes from the. You know, everyone reckons the EU doesn't want an ODA Brexit and the UK doesn't either. Mm-hmm. But as you say, it could happen by accident because the two sides just get a bit fed up with each other. Uh, it's clear that there's a lot of irritation in the on the EU side now with, with the UK and with Theresa May and with the way the whole talks have been approached. Uh, there was talk of an even tougher line could have been taken at the summit uh, a couple of weeks ago in the event they gave uh, the UK a couple more weeks but it's unclear how much leeway they will give now if the meaningful vote isn't passed on the, on the, on the third occasion and, and, and the UK Theresa May or whoever whoever it is comes back uh, with, with another proposal um, could that lead to a accidental no deal as you, as you say <laughs> on April the 12th it could 
Um, my gut instinct, given the way these things are delayed, is that, you know, there might be another bit of an extension there. Yeah, the EU will make a few extensions available. Uh, they will do, but th- you come up against a hard constraint, I think, of the European elections and the European Parliament elections. And is the UK going to agree to elect MEPs or is it, or is it not? Uh, and sometime in May, allegedly they have to decide by April the 12th. Maybe that could be pushed out a bit, but by sometime in early May, that decision, I think, has to be, has to, has to be made finally. Uh, so I think we're finally, we are coming up to the to the end game in terms of this bit of Brexit. But as you say, the extraordinary thing is the uh, the breadth between the different possible outcomes. Adele, even if we do somehow amazingly get a deal, is there still damage, you know, from this from this whole years of uh, uncertainty to the Irish economy? Um, yes, there is, but there will be less damage. So in, if, if a deal is, in, is, is agreed uh, in, in the next couple of weeks, the, then that would involve a transition period where the, where the UK remains very closely aligned to, to the EU for at least until, until the end of 2020. That transition period can also be extended. So um, in, in that situation, um, you know, the, the, the impact on, on the Irish economy anyway will be more muted. Um, but I suppose looking um, further out, I think another thing that's really important to, to, to talk about here is that the, the actual future trading relationship between the UK and the EU has yet to begin. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, the deal, this is just about the UK exiting the EU. Their, their future relationship with the EU is yet to be negotiated. And given that we're three, almost three years since the, uh, the, the, the referendum, um, there's still a lot of uncertainty going forward. Including who will lead those negotiations? Because again, as I say, we don't know yet, but um, Theresa May looks like she might announce a date for her resignation today. Um, but I hesitate to say that with any confidence, but that's what they're saying right now. But we don't know. It could be a sort of an arch Brexiteer leading <laughs> leading the trade negotiations with the EU. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It's 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 at, at, at the moment. I think it's 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 incredibly difficult to make any kind of predictions and in terms of what's going on in the UK house in the UK House of Parliament mm. um, and so uh, like I said almost day by day that the situation changes um, we, we've seen some of the, the, the harder Brexiteers today in, in the uh, in the Conservative governments suggesting now that they may in fact uh, vote for the, 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 the meaningful vote for the deal if it is put to a third meaningful vote. So and I suppose that what I was kind of wondering is if a, a soft Brexit had been agreed, if there had been a deal months ago, way before this deadline, would that damage have been less than what a, the damage will be now if there's a, if there's a deal agreed now? Sure. So to the extent that that, that at, at the, uh, for the past year or so, to the extent that the businesses have been holding off on investment, that, that, that people have been holding off on making big purchases, that, that, that all that kind of stuff, all that uncertainty that has been kind of affecting investment decisions and, and, and spending. Um, if, 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 if we had a bit more clarity, that that negative impact um, uh, w- would, be, would be a lot less. 
Cliff, um, higher prices for Irish consumers, but also perhaps even more starkly and uh, immediately there will be higher prices for uh, UK consumers if, if there is a disorderly no-deal Brexit. Do you think that will have a kind of a big public reaction? I mean, could we be seeing even you know civil unrest as a result of that? Yeah, I suppose that there's two issues there. One is what happens to uh, goods coming from the UK into the EU market. And the EU have made clear that tariffs, special import taxes, will be applied. So in other words, the UK will be treated as, as would any other third country. Uh, that will mean higher prices in the shops for Irish consumers, you're right. Uh, and that will be mainly noticed in areas uh, like food, food products, uh, because those are the areas where the higher the highest tariff supply is historically. Mm-hmm. Um, so cereals, prepared foods, uh, meat products, all of those things could increase substantially. And I think previously SRI work suggested that uh, prices could go up by around €1,000 a year for the average household. So, you know, a significant enough hit. I suppose the feeling is, you know, that, that, that although that may happen, that it's, you know, not the fault of our government. You know, our government has, has sort of no. done whatever they could in the... In, what they're in this tough situation. Absolutely. And I think it's been clear from the start that if uh, if the UK did leave uh, without in an odious situation that these tariffs would be would be applied and that uh, there's really not, not a lot can be done about that. Uh, as I say, they will be higher in some areas than others. Uh, and food food products, supermarket products uh, are, are particularly the, the, the areas where I think uh, consumers would, would notice it. In terms of UK consumers... Uh, the UK has announced uh, that it will allow a fair number of goods in tariff-free to try and hold down prices for consumers. But you're right, to protect producers, they've also announced uh, the tariffs will apply in the short term, particularly, again, in areas like food. So they face a really difficult job, which is overnight to try and balance, to put in a new regime and to balance the competing needs of their producers, their farmers, their food industry and their consumers. And you're right, that's going to, you know, that's going to cause trouble from businesses and it's going to cause trouble from consumers. Uh, it's a really extraordinary thing to try and do in such a short period of time. I think the final point I'd make is because food is an area that's going to be subject to tariffs coming into the UK, the area of the Irish economy that's most exposed is the food sector, is the agricultural sector, is rural Ireland. That really is where I think the biggest hit would be would be evident in the short term. The whole of the economy will suffer, but rural and regional Ireland will suffer suffer more. On that gloomy note, that's all for this edition of Inside Business with me, Laura Slattery. Thanks to Adele Bergen and Cliff Taylor. I was also joined today by Owen Burke-Kennedy and Peter Hamilton. This podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. We'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening.